0: Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclides, and today I'm joined by Dr. William Sands as part of the mini-series on Maharishi Vedic Science. Dr. Sands is the Dean of the College of Maharishi Vedic Science at MIU and an Associate Professor of Yogic Philosophy, amongst other courses. In this episode, Dr. Sands discusses his personal journey with Transcendental Meditation TM, as well as the history of the TM movement in Maharishi International University. Next, Dr. Sands explains the philosophy of yoga and the seven states of consciousness. We next consider Maharishi's theory that enlightenment is our birthright. From there, we chat about the Vedic literature and the ebbs and flows of knowledge throughout the ages. Dr. Sands then explains Ashtanga Yoga, the eight limbs of yoga. We next discuss the field effects of consciousness and their implications for world peace. We end the discussion with a vision of harmony and unity amidst geopolitical turmoil. Outros available for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled, The Vibes. Please enjoy. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Uchelis, and today I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. William Sands. Dr. Sands, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, uh, really excited to chat with you after we just wrapped up or just about wrapped up with uh, our course on the philosophy of yoga. So... Uh, I've got approximately a billion questions that I wanted to follow up and ask you from the course. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to, you know, try my best to skim me that down. But, um, you know, before we get going, we'd love to just learn more about your personal background and how you were introduced to transcendental meditation and Maharishi's teachings.
1: Well, um, I was first introduced in 1970. I was a sophomore at, at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And a friend of mine just happened to mention he was looking for an old friend, and he mentioned that this person had learned how to practice transcendental meditation. And as soon as he mentioned it, I I, I perked right up and, and thought that that sounded that sounded good. I wanted to give it a try. I had no idea what it was about. I could it could have been anything, um, but I, I walked into a transcendental meditation lecture, heard the lecture. Um, I, I you know in those days I had. Um, I forget what you call it, but I couldn't focus or pay attention on practically anything, including my school studies. And so I didn't hear anything of in the introductory lecture or the second lecture, but I started and learned. And um, it was absolutely amazing. Um, before I even uh, noticed that I had any benefits from it, I, I remember walking down the street um, back from school one afternoon, going back to the house I was living in. And I felt fantastic. I was happy. I was blissful. I was um, just feeling like everything was good. Personal relationships were going well. I was starting to focus in school for the first time in my entire life. And um, I remember thinking, gee, I I hope that meditation starts working soon. Um, Because it's that kind of subtle, very personal uh, uh, growth and development of consciousness and of awareness that, that one can often notice. And my marks, my grades went right up. Um, I went from a, a solid C student to a solid A student um, and, and through no effort. It was just because all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I could focus. That was my benefit. Different people have different things. Um, and and uh, over time, you develop more and more and more and more. But um, for me, it was the ability to focus and concentrate without even uh, without even noticing I was doing it. That's really exciting, and I'm curious because you mentioned that your ears perked right up when you
0: heard about TM. Was there had you tried meditation in the past, or what do you think it was about the the topic that made you interested?
1: Uh, I have no idea. It, it was I was just sitting there talking to a friend, and he talked about he mentioned transcendental meditation just by name. He didn't know anything about it either. Um, he's still a very close friend of mine. He learned TM at the same time, and and we talk all the time. But it, there was nothing there other than the name, yeah. but I'd never tried meditation. I'd always been interested in it. Yeah. It's pretty cool how
0: something like that can end up completely unexpectedly, you know, dramatically changing the direction of your your life's course.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I'd love to know then from, you know, your first encounters with TM, what were you studying in undergrad, and how did you decide to eventually continue with higher education at MIU?
1: I was a finance major in the business school. And um, I wasn't much interested in it, but I had taken it because it didn't have a language requirement, <laughs> and um, and and so when I finished, I, I really wanted to be a TM teacher. That was what I did right after college. I I got a job to to, to get some, the tuition together, and and I went off to a teacher training course that um that I took, and uh, I've been full time. Uh, uh, employee, I guess you could say, of the TM organizations, different organizations at different times uh, ever since.
0: That's great. And, um, you know, for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with Transcendental Meditation, could you touch on um, what makes it different from some of the other meditation techniques they may be more familiar with today and touch on, you know, uh, obviously being a TM teacher, you know, the importance of that personal one-on-one instruction?
1: Yeah, good. Um, it's very, very different from other meditation techniques. Uh, th- interestingly enough, you'll often see news articles that talk about the benefits and effects of, trans- of meditation. They never they don't say transcendental meditation, just meditation. It's all research on TM. Uh, TM is the only meditation technique that has a significant amount of research that, gives, that shows all of the different benefits, many, many different benefits in mind, body, environment, behavior, um, so many there are over 700 different studies have been have been taken have been done and of those i'd say three hundred fifty to four hundred have been published in peer-reviewed scientific and academic journals uh, it's different because it's traditional meditation it's it's uh it's simple it's effortless it's a mental technique you don't have to do anything other than sit comfortably in, in a chair and practice something that's extraordinarily easy. And it's not just convenient that it's easy. Uh, the, the fact is is that it works because it's easy. It works because it takes advantage of the natural tendency of the mind. The mind will always go in the direction of greater charm, greater happiness, greater fulfillment. That's the way we want our lives to go. Anything we do, anything we think about uh, is always it's always directing us how to gain more happiness in life. And mentally, we just set up a condition in the mind and allow that process to take place, and we're automatically drawn to the least excited state of the mind, a field of of infinite creativity, intelligence. Uh, we, we refer to it sometimes as the inner self. And it's the contact and experience with that level of mind that allows us to become more creative, more intelligent, more bright, more happy, more fulfilled, more satisfied uh, internally within, uh, and and also allows our body to get rid of accumulated stress, uh, fatigue, uh, toxins, impurities. Because when the mind rests very deeply, the body rests extraordinarily deeply. And that deep rest is what takes care of anxiety, high blood pressure, all of these different things. And it works. It works for everybody. Uh, people notice different benefits in the early stages. Um, and, but the thing about it is is you get benefits in the early stages, just like I did. I learned to, to, to focus and, and pay attention in classes. Um, but over time, it's cumulative. The benefits and, and uh, the, the good effects of it just keep keep accumulating over the years. I've been practicing TM for over 50 years I think it's about 52 years by now and it it life just keeps getting better it's extraordinary
0: That's amazing And I've certainly noticed that myself just in the years since I've been practicing um and as a TM teacher would love to get your thoughts on what uh you know what how much of a difference do you think it makes having that personal kind of one-on-one interaction because for me i think that certainly was a big differentiator for tm versus calm and headspace and different apps that i'd tried in the past before getting before learning tm
1: yeah the thing about the personal instruction the instruction that you get uh it needs to be personal if it could be written out in a book we would write the book i mean we we don't care how it's done it just has to be done that way in order for it to be effective and, and so Uh, During the personal instruction, one receives uh, a mantra, a sound whose effects are known, and how to use it properly. Everybody has a different physiology. Everybody has different experiences when they learn to meditate. Uh, The teachers are trained to guide you through your own individualized experience. So you may experience certain things, you know, not dramatic, wild things, but uh but just different you may have different experiences on your initial days of instruction and you have to learn to meditate in the context of that so you need a teacher who can be there um and and who, who could guide you the course itself actually um can be done with with just one personal instruction and then the, the other instructions the other classes the three following ones can be done online uh in most most circumstances um but the the personal instruction is essential uh for for properly doing it the The other meditation techniques that you you can learn you can learn apps for them uh, they're not the same thing they don't they don't have the same benefit they don't have the effect you might they might be able to you might be able to relax a little bit or something like that but um just take note of the lack of research on them uh they they don't have the astounding uh research on blood pressure and anxiety and personal interactions and and that kind of thing that this TM does.
0: Totally. And that for me was a huge differentiator. You know, my, uh, my path for TM and and MIU had a lot of really interesting synchronicities that, you know, kind of connect in, in hindsight. But I think, you know, my first intro to the idea that there was this practice of TM that is different than maybe what others are used to was predominantly through Ray Dalio coming, coming from a finance background. You know, he, he obviously speaks really highly of it. So that got my wheels turning. And then as I uh, came across some of the philosophy of Maharishi's teachings and and the work of Dr. Hagelin and Dr. Nader and how, you know, this isn't just philosophical conjecture, but there's very hard science, neuroscience and string theory and what have you to back all this up. That's a really helped me get super interested in and then eventually make the leap to start TM and then uh, enroll at MIU.
1: Uh, Marshy, who's the founder of TM, he always had a very scientific approach and he felt that everything that he talked about in terms of the philosophy behind it, he said, just consider it theory. It's all theory. And then we look to evidence. We look to the evidence from scientific, from empirical research. We look to the evidence from uh, our own personal experiences. And we look to the evidence from the Vedic literature. And and, uh, you find that, Everything is backed up very, very significantly and very substantially. But but he always had this scientific approach, and he always surrounded himself with scientists who would look at everything and examine everything. And he asked them, test everything. Test everything that I say. If I talk about higher states of consciousness, figure out how to measure it. See whether people are actually growing to higher states of consciousness. And there's a very, very significant body of research that, that, that supports uh, virtually everything that he talked about.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and on that note, you know, maybe we could just uh, to wrap up the background piece and then get more into the philosophy of yoga. Could you talk a little bit about um, the history of Maharishi's teachings and the TM movement and the formation of MIU?
1: Yeah, well, it, 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 Maharishi started out, he tells a, a long, very, very charming story about being in the Himalayas. And and he just had this urge to go to the South. And the other people there, he was a recluse. Um, he was His life was given to just practicing meditation uh, by himself, without friends, family, and so forth. But he had this urge to go to the South. And he wasn't really sure why he had the urge. But he went to the South, and he began teaching people. And he said what struck him was that the Vedic literature, the literature that... that it, it, is behind the the TM movement. He said it always talks about how life should be happy. Life should be blissful, that everything's made out of bliss. And yet he said he looked around and that just wasn't the case. So he taught TM. It was very, very well uh, uh, respected and, and, and appreciated by the people that he taught. And he taught wider groups of people. He started traveling around the world. Um, and he traveled around the world eventually realized that he was going to have to reproduce himself in the sense that he needed more people who would uh, be able to teach TM. him. So he started training teachers and, and so forth. And there was an individual along the way. His name was Dr. Nat Goldhaber, who said, you know, we should start a university. And Marshy loved the idea. And they started a university with Dr. Keith Wallace, um, who's a neuroscientist and who did the very first research on t m back in nineteen sixty nine uh, and um and they started m i u and it's it's burgeoning it's it's interestingly enough during the pandemic um it it grew significantly uh, our online presence grew significantly so did our on campus um but it it's it's a growing university it's not huge yet uh but we have a couple thousand students. And and it's growing all the time, and and online education has really been a tremendous asset to the to the university because people like yourself, Jordan, who have other responsibilities and have have a, a life and a job and all of that, uh, can take the, our educational programs while staying at home and and watching courses over Zoom. So that that's pretty much how um uh MIU has grown. The president of MIU, Dr. John Hagelin, is is a Harvard-trained uh, physicist. He has one of the most important papers in unified field theory that he published. It's still cited uh, tremendously, and he's the, currently the president of, of MIU. And it gives us a very scientific presence because he, he comes at it from the angle of science, and that's his interest, and that's his experience. And, and he, he governs and administrates the univer- administers the university from that perspective so it's doing very, very well.
0: That's really exciting to hear. And you know, again to the my, my personal journey for MIU, I'd already started TM last year, and then I heard a podcast that Dr. Hagelin did on Russell Brand's podcast, actually, um, and that's what sealed the deal for me. I was like, yeah, this is this is where I need to be. Like these these, and and I've just been so honored and excited to be a part of the school and just have learned so much just in my short, you know, semester and a half. And I just really cannot wait for the rest of what the program has in store.
1: Well, you've been a great student. I can tell
0: you that. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, so with that, let's get into the class. We just wrapped up the philosophy of yoga. Um, and let's start with the basics first. What is philosophy? And second, what is yoga?
1: Good, good. Um, Yoga, yoga is is understood in the modern world as being uh, collections of exercises, physical postures that you do on a mat in a studio, perhaps, or do it at home. Uh, there are websites now. There, are, well, when I was young, I had a friend whose father practiced yoga, and everybody thought that he was really, really strange, that he was really weird to be practicing this this kind of ancient form of exercise. Um, but nowadays. Everybody practices yoga um, but yoga is much more in reality than just exercises. They're called asanas, and the breathing exercises are called pranayama um and that's how how yoga is understood sometimes uh, there's included some meditation of some kind, uh usually not very effective or not, or not very uh not very useful uh but that's what's considered to be yoga but traditionally, yoga means much more than that. The Sanskrit root that it comes from is yuj, Y-U-J. And it means to unify, to bring together, uh, to to put into a state of unity. And I mentioned earlier in talking about transcendental meditation that we, we experience the inner self. We experience more refined levels of the thinking process, subtler levels of the mind, subtler levels of the mind. And ultimately, we can experience um, a state of pure consciousness, pure awareness, pure being, we sometimes call it, which just means consciousness alone by itself, no objects of thought, no objects of perception, uh, nothing but pure, unbounded awareness. And that, traditionally, in the philosophy of, of yoga, it is the state of yoga. It's the state of yoga because it's a state of complete unity. And it's a field of pure unity But what we find is, and what we find through the regular practice of TM, is that this field of unity begins over time as as the nervous system becomes more refined and more cultured and freer of of stress and anxiety and and all of that. It begins to show itself into our activity. When we find that from TM we become happier, we become more fulfilled, we become more uh, alert and bright and and aware— That's the integration, the the integration of the inner self with our outer activity. The integration of our inner self and our outer activity is also a state of yoga. It's a state of yoga because it's a union between the inner self and, and outer activity. And that results ultimately in higher states of consciousness. Higher states of consciousness are states in which one experiences the unbounded, blissful, Universal field of pure intelligence, along with one's normal activity. So, if you're involved in investments and you have an investment company um, or whatever, then you you practice your 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 um, what what you do in life, your career, and and yet at the same time you experience unbounded awareness, unbounded pure bliss consciousness, and that is also considered a state of yoga. Yoga is really uh, there's two senses of it. Just just to make it kind of a little simplified, there's the, there's the path of yoga, which is the the asanas, the meditation, the the breathing exercises, which help you to experience the state of yoga, which is the inner self and ultimately higher states of consciousness. You don't have to practice asanas and pranayama in order to experience the state of yoga. Uh, transcendental meditation is enough. Um, but we do have yoga asanas that people can optionally learn after they've learned the practice of TM. Uh, they're not required. The TM is really the main thing for experiencing the inner self. So that's just kind of a brief general summary of, of, of what we see yoga to be. That's really helpful. Um, and for
0: folks who have probably, you know, I, I imagine everyone's at least heard of the idea of higher states of consciousness, but maybe don't necessarily know what that means, right? And so maybe we could just quickly chat through what are the kind of seven states of consciousness that Maharishi identified and and what is that relationship with our own consciousness to that of the realm of the absolute.
1: Good, good, good. good. Um, uh, There are seven states of consciousness. Traditionally, Uh, the first three are states that we're already familiar with waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Those are considered different states of consciousness because there are different physiological parameters associated with them. If you hook someone up to an EEG uh, machine and you check their their blood uh, chemistry and their breathing and so forth, you'd find that it was very different between waking, uh, dreaming, and deep sleep. Transcendental consciousness is a fourth major state of consciousness, and that's the inner self. That's what you experience when you practice TM. It's called samadhi in, in yoga philosophy. And, and that's a fourth major state of consciousness. It's unique and different from other states of consciousness. Um, and the, the brain physiology is very interesting. There's a high degree of, of uh, integration between the different brain waves. And what that means is, if you measure the left side of your brain, you measure the right side, you measure the front, you me- measure the back. And the brain waves, you'll find there are different brain waves for each, each area. And when you're experiencing transcendental consciousness, these brain waves line up and they move like this together. Um, yeah, it's called um, intrahemispheric brainwave coherence. That's one characteristic of transcendental consciousness. The other characteristic is that the physiology rests very, very deeply. Uh, it can be twice as deep as deep sleep. And during that rest, the body is uh, able to release stress, toxins, um, uh, anything that's impurities, abnormalities of any kind. And the value of that is not just that you feel better after meditation, but that your body becomes more and more able to integrate the pure consciousness, transcendental consciousness, with activity. When all the stress is gone from the nervous system, when all the stresses and strains and toxins are gone and released, after some time, after some years of practicing TM, uh, one experiences a state of life called cosmic consciousness. Cosmic simply means all-inclusive. And all-inclusive means it includes the outside, the, what we call the relative world, and that's the everyday world that we all live in, going to the market, going to restaurants, seeing your family, all of that. That's part of our relative experience. Cosmic consciousness includes that, And it also includes the infinite, unbounded, eternal bliss consciousness that is the very constituent of the inner self. Then there are refinements upon cosmic consciousness. Um, The sixth state of consciousness we sometimes refer to as God consciousness, which simply means or simply refers to the ability to perceive the relative world at its finest level not only just the surface of the desk, not only the surface of the trees, not only the surface of the mountains, uh, but the very, very finest level of the relative existence. And in the highest state of consciousness, which is called unity consciousness, one experiences everything as an expression of one's own self. What that means is this, this intelligence, this pure intelligence, transcendental consciousness, that is within us, is actually the unified field of all the laws of nature. That is a field of life that gives rise to the different laws of nature, it gives rise to the different uh, aspects of life, again the mountains, the planets, the trees, the subatomic particles, all of those, they all find their source in this field of intelligence, which we contact every day when we practice tread meditation when we experience unity consciousness which is the seventh uh, state of consciousness then what we experience is we recognize on the level of perception and on the level of our own consciousness we recognize that everything is nothing other than myself the trees are nothing other than an expression of my own self the mountains are nothing other than my own self this is a supreme level of consciousness the supreme level of awareness the supreme level of life, and the goal of life um, for all, all time. And when one experiences that, then one one has, has, has experienced it all. Um, it's the ultimate value. So those are the seven states of consciousness. Waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Then transcendental consciousness. And then the three states of consciousness that integrate transcendental consciousness with our normal waking activity. Cosmic Consciousness, God Consciousness, and Unity Consciousness.
0: Great, thank you. Um, And I think for me in particular, as you think about, you know, those last three states, right, CCGC and UC, these are what many in this uh, various spiritual traditions have referred to as states of enlightenment over historic times. And one of the things that was so eye-opening for me in our first class was the whole idea that, you know, enlightenment is not something that's Reserved for Krishna and Jesus Christ, right? That's it's something that is our birthright and is not only accessible to every individual human being, but it's actually quite simple and, and easy to get there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, and this is one of the unique things about transcendental meditation. I don't know of any other form of meditation that can can uh, uh, can claim this. But people are experiencing these higher states of consciousness sometimes in flashes, sometimes in prolonged experiences, sometimes permanently. Uh, But we had a course here at MIU uh, that lasted up until the pandemic kind of broke it apart, where people came from all over the world and practiced their TM and their advanced TM City program together in a group. And they had amazing experiences of higher states of consciousness where they saw everything in terms of themselves. They saw the most fine levels of the relative. They experience the unbounded, infinite bliss consciousness as part of their lives. And for some, they experience it permanently. For some, they experience flashes of it or glimpses. Um, but they're very real, and and they're very very much available.
0: Wow, that's really cool. And so you've touched on the idea of the Vedic literature a few times. Um, I think it'd be helpful if we kind of traced back, you know, what is the Vedic literature and then can we maybe talk about some of the most important teachers, Krishna, Buddha, Shankara, Gurudev, and kind of some of those, some of the ebbs and flows of the the knowledge that's been lost and rediscovered throughout the ages.
1: Yes. Um, the Vedic literature is, are the expressions of natural law. Natural law means the laws of nature, the laws of nature that, that, uh, give rise to creation uh, and organize creation, and they are the laws of na- nature find their home, so to speak, in pure consciousness, in being, in transcendental consciousness. So when one experiences transcendental consciousness, one experiences um, the the home of all the laws of nature. These laws of nature express themselves. In the literature of the Vedic tradition, the Vedic tradition is, Veda means knowledge. And the tradition of Veda is the tradition of knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of higher states of consciousness. The knowledge of what these higher states of consciousness are and how to get there. And that's what the Vedic tradition for so many generations unfolds. Um, the the um, I'm trying to remember what the other questions you've asked. Uh, that's basically the the Vedic literature. The Vedic tradition has many many well known um, individuals who, at one point or another, saw the reality of life and promoted it in the um, uh, to to the public. Now, the public has never been so big as it is today. Uh, today we have the internet. We have instant um, instant knowledge throughout the world, and as as a result. Uh, the, the the teachings of the Vedic tradition of Maharshi in particular are 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 known everywhere. Uh, I mean, there are persons practicing transcendental meditation in every conceivable part of the world. I've taught all over the world. I have taught in Russia for many months, and and uh, in in uh, Holland and and all over Asia, and and uh, and there are large groups of people practicing TM already. There are. Um, uh, quite a number of Buddhist monks who are realizing that um, the the tradition of Buddhism it's a beautiful tradition, but the meditation doesn't always produce samadhi. It doesn't produce uh, the expect uh, the effects of enlightenment. And so there there are some T, transcendental meditation teachers who are Buddhist monks who have been teaching throughout Asia uh, and having a huge success. Where the the monks are living their normal life. No one's asking them to change anything. They just add this 20 minutes twice a day of transcendental meditation, and their religion is becoming alive. Every religion um, has its source in this Vedic knowledge, the knowledge of the transcendent. um, uh, Christ is known to have said the kingdom of of the Lord is within you. Seek ye first the kingdom of of heaven within, and then all else will come to you. That's, That's a classic Vedic statement it's the knowledge that's at the, at the uh at the core of every religion but without getting into a long explanation this fundamental knowledge of life it it just as a natural course of of life it comes and it goes it, it gets discovered it gets lost and in the vast vast period of time much older than our human history it has come and gone innumerable times and what what marshy's teaching is and the teaching of his teacher, Brahmananda Saraswati, uh, is just bringing to life what is naturally there, what has been known in the past from, from time to time, uh, and which gets misrepresented, mistranslated over time uh, for different reasons. And he's just bringing to light what is always there. And, it, you know, in time it'll get lost again. It's just It just seems to be the way it is, but hopefully not for a long, long time. Uh, one of the great advantages we have of of this revitalization of knowledge is that we have Marshi on videotape and as long as the language itself they're all taped in, in english and there's many hundreds of hours in in hindi also as long as the language themselves don't change uh, then this knowledge will be available to people directly because what happens what's happened over time is the great teachers come along in in their great enlightenment they teach uh and they teach to their students who don't have the same degree of enlightenment, and the, te- the, the students interpret it, they interpret it from the level of their own consciousness. And uh, it happened in, in Buddhism, it happened in all of the great religions that over time the, the essential teaching gets lost, and then what, what you're left is is a mishmash of of reality with no practical way of 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 uh, of achieving the higher states of consciousness. So Marshy's revived it in this time, um, and he's revived it in a way—he's very, very carefully—he he, he plotted and planned from the very, very beginning how to not only teach everybody, but how to preserve it. Uh, he's written books. He has videos. Uh, as long as the videos and the books are there, then he over and over taught this simple—at uh, the, the, least the intellectual understanding about this simple, effortless procedure— and and the the efforts that have come into the meditation of other traditions won't won't arise for hopefully many thousands of years yeah
0: that's great and i i uh i think also kind of to our earlier conversation first like maharishi's first book the science of being and art of living like just puts all these really complicated abstract ideas into such clear understandable practical language and i i even just love that title right the science of being and that's really what the TM movement has really all been about. Like, this isn't pseudoscience, woo-woo, whatever, you know, the the materialists want to call it. Like, this is all backed by, by legitimate science.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Marshi himself had a degree in physics uh, from his university years at the University of Allahabad. And um, he always had a scientific perspective and a scientific approach. And the main approach he had was that it's important to bring out knowledge in the language of the time. If it had been a different time with a different language, he would have brought it out differently, as did the other great members of the tradition like Shankara and, and, uh, and Parashara and all of them. Uh, there are many great members of this, this uh, tradition, Vedic tradition of knowledge, and they all brought the knowledge out in the language of the time. And the language of one time is, is not really appropriate to the language of another. And our time is very scientifically oriented. It has a very show-me, show-me approach to life. Uh, let me see evidence. I don't want to just hear a philosophy. I want to see your evidence. I want to see evidence. And, and Marshy, uh oriented his teaching to that uh, very, very worthy uh, attitude towards knowledge. Uh, people today don't just believe anything that they hear because anybody who spends time on the Internet knows that there's a lot of junk and a lot of, you know, philosophies that aren't really worth the time that uh that's spent on them and and so marshy was very evidence-oriented and and uh he made sure that that all of his teaching was corroborated in some way ideally by by empirical knowledge but also by experiential and the vedic uh tradition
0: absolutely
1: and i think What you were saying
0: with regards to this ebb and flow of knowledge and higher states of consciousness and how MIU actually saw a big uptick in enrollment during the pandemic, it's kind of like a, a good example of how, you know, in times of crisis like the pandemic, I think a lot of people were in very tough spots mentally at that time. And so you have that kind of concept of the dark night of the soul that it almost takes those those trials and tribulations for you to recognize that what else is out there what am i missing and and you know my spiritual awakening happened during the pandemic too i think i think it's not a coincidence that a lot of other folks had those similar occurrences in a time where our world was in such crisis yeah
1: no you're absolutely right and one important element which i i forgot to mention is that when you learn tm you're 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 not asked to believe anything uh, it's not a philosophy all that we're talking about here, about higher states of consciousness, is just presenting possibilities. But in learning TM, you don't have to learn, you don't have to believe in a single thing. You don't even have to believe it works. You don't have to have a positive outlook. You don't have to just uh, assume that it's going to work. You just practice TM twice a day, and the benefits speak for themselves. And then it, then if later on you're interested, as 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 many people are, then we have courses and programs, and we can talk about Higher states of consciousness and so forth but but initially in learning TM you just look see it see for yourself, see the benefits, see the blood pressure go down, see the um uh, uh, you know all the different changes that take place in the physiology for yourself. We have one of our very early uh proponents he's he's gone now, but he was the the command, commandant of the Army War College and he learned tm God uh, general Franklin Davis. And he learned TM because his doctor told him that he had a, a severe blood pressure problem. And he didn't want to start TM. I mean, it's, it's, it seemed completely antithetical to the, to the army um, frame of life. But, but he did it because he was worried about his blood pressure. His blood pressure dropped dramatically. And he became a great uh, fan of, of Maharshi's. He traveled with Maharshi uh, when Maharshi would speak all over the world um and he was a, he was a very strong proponent of tm and it was all because of his own experience and that's that's all that one has one doesn't have to believe anything one just follows we follow our own experience i followed my experience jordan's followed his experience um and that's all we need to that's beautiful um so why
0: don't we spend some time talking about ashtanga yoga okay um and some of the you know misconceptions that common yogic philosophers have had about it, kind of getting back to your discussion of samadhi and and uh, yeah, so I'll leave a little bit more open-ended uh, from
1: there. Okay, good. Ashtanga yoga. Ashta uh, means eight in Sanskrit. Anga uh, means limb. And Ashtanga yoga are the eight limbs of yoga. And since about 1920, uh, there was a uh, an Indian gentleman, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but um, he formulated a series of exercises synchronized breathing exercises physical exercise and so forth that he took from um that he felt that he was taking from the patanjali yoga sutras which is the 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 text of the vedic literature that deals specifically with yoga philosophy and he formulated these uh, these exercises and they're very commonly practiced all over the world where one synchronizes breathing and, and physical exercises very rigorously, and it has some it may have some good benefit, I don't know, but in Marshi's view, it's a complete understand, misunderstanding of what Ashtanga yoga is. Ashtanga means eight limbs of yoga now in in this what I would call the modern uh, the modern approach to Ashtanga yoga, uh, the idea is that you go from one limb to another. Uh, you you practice this limb and then you move on to this limb and you move on to this limb and ultimately you achieve the state of yoga. Nobody ever really does, but it's it's part of the philosophy that you, maybe someday you will. If you practice Ashtanga yoga for many 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 years, you might have a glimpse of of samadhi, a glimpse of transcendental consciousness. Um, but but uh, as far as I can tell, experiences are far and few. Um, but practicing that program. But what Marshi explains is is that it's a wrong understanding. It's not eight steps. It's ashta anga. It's eight limbs. And what he holds is that if you if you practice transcendental meditation, if you experience samadhi deep within, then all of the other limbs will grow spontaneously. Um, they'll they'll grow automatically and and completely. I'll give you an example of a couple of the limbs. Um, there's there's a group called the Five Yamas, and there's satya, ahimsa, asteya, aparigraha, and uh, and another one. Um, and satya means truth. So the idea is you start out speaking the truth, and you practice speaking the truth. And then when you're—this t- is, this is in the modern view, not in Maharshi's view. Um, and the modern view is if you practice— um, if you practice satya, if you practice speaking the truth, then uh, someday you'll be you'll be worthy of practicing the next, ahinsa. And ahinsa, those who have studied history may know from uh, Mahatma Gandhi that, that ahinsa means nonviolence, uh, nonviolence on every level, not just not hurting someone, but not harming someone with your words or your actions or your deeds, not harming the environment, not harming animals, not harming all of those things. So, so what the, the, the modern proponents of Ashtanga Yoga do is they, they take you through these things as though they're steps with the idea that someday you'll attain yoga, yoga being the experience of the inner self. And so you practice um, speaking the truth, you practice the um, uh, nonviolence, um, Satya Hinsa asteya. Asteya means not stealing, so you practice not stealing and so forth. Until you're worthy of the next step. What Marshi points out and what scientific research actually corroborates, is that if you have the experience of Samadhi first, if you have the experience of yoga first, then all of these limbs grow spontaneously. It's like uh, a body. If you have a body and you have your you know your chest and your, uh, your heart and lungs and all that, And then you have limbs. You have your arms and your legs. Maybe you could count your head as a limb. Probably not fair, but for the sake of our discussion, we can do it. And if you want them to grow, you don't pull on them. You don't twist them. You don't turn them. But the body grows, and they all grow spontaneously. In the same way, when the body grows, when the body of samadhi grows, when yoga grows within us, Then all of these different things like satya, ahinza, asteya, they all grow automatically. They all grow um, uh, spontaneously without any effort, without any pressure, without any twisting or turning. Um, I I mean, one of the things that Marsha used to laugh about when he talked about was uh, asteya, not stealing. He said, "How do you practice not stealing?" You can't just practice. You can't get up in the morning and say, "Okay, I'm going to spend 15 minutes practicing not stealing." You know, it doesn't even make any sense to think that way. Um, and the same way, something like uh, ahimsa, uh, not not um, uh, harming others. You know, it's something you spontaneously do or you don't do. Uh, it, it, and and the propensity to not harm others grows spontaneously from uh, from transcendental meditation practice, which is. A path or a practice of yoga, um, and then, so that's basically was Maharishi's idea with with Ashtanga yoga. There's also another angle, which is a little abstract, and I don't want to get into it too much, but that these different different limbs are um, qualities of consciousness that structure its nature. Now, consciousness in this sense, we're thinking about the unified field. If you're familiar at all with unified field theory of physics. You know that physicists uh, often pr- uh, project that there is a unified field, uh, a, a, a unified vacuum state that underlies all of creation. It's, it's, it's a unification of all force and matter fields, um, and it's the basis of, of everything that we know and see as our material universe. The, um, uh, the unified field is a unified basis to all that. And in Vedic science, we refer to it as being, and we say only that it's a good description. It's just not a vacuum state. It's consciousness. It's pure intelligence. It's pure awareness. The very nature and structure of that uh, field of intelligence has eight different characteristics, the eight limbs of yoga. Um, And the eight limbs of yoga are, um, are, are different qualities of consciousness that that uh, form the structure, form the nature, uh, and they basically construct that field of intelligence. And that's the true understanding of Ashtanga Yoga. It's not uh, according to the, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. It's not an exercise program. The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are not about the practice of yoga. They're a description, a philosophical description of the state of yoga, what its nature is, what its characteristics are, what its qualities are. Um, and and that's that's the basic idea underlying Ashtanga yoga.
0: Thank you. And you know, I think um I love your emphasis on samadhi as being something that, you know, is is readily achievable. It's not the ultimate step. And I think it's a line in your book where you mention, you know, the benefits of TM are immediate and they're cumulative. And I've certainly seen that, and I think it's so cool to be able to say like, the first couple times, I think even when I learned it, I, I felt that first experience of transcending and it was so, so foreign, but so comfortable and familiar in a way too.
1: Well, you know, that's a, uh, an interesting point you make up about feeling transcendence in the first days of meditation. Uh, most mo- uh, meditation practices, they look to the experience of transcendence as some far off possibility. And because of the nature of those meditation practices, it'll never become a reality. It'll never be there because the effort that's involved inhibits and prohibits the experience of the inner self. Um, But what one of Maharshi's points is, is that a true practice of yoga um, should produce transcendence just in the early days. It may be just a glimpse. It may be just a brief moment where one's not experiencing a mantra or thought. Uh, but just pure awareness, pure consciousness. It may be just a moment of that, but it grows over time. But it, co- it should come in the beginning days of meditation and not be thought of as something that maybe you'll have a glimpse of in 50 years or 60 years or so. Um, it, that just means it's not working if the meditation is not working. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is you talked about the, uh, the yamas and the idea of, like, you know, you can't practice not stealing and all that. Like I think in our modern world where things are so complicated and so interconnected that a lot of people want to do right and want to, you know, evolve to higher states of, you know, maybe not consciousness as, as, as their direct goal, but, you know, I mean, just generally want to evolve to be better people. Uh, and I love the metaphor that, that Maharishi talks about is like, if you're in the dark, in this realm of the senses, in the realm of the ever-changing, and all you have is dark and you're continuing to search for that, you're, you're not going to find the light in the darkness, right? You have to go inward, and then that that right action happens spontaneously.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful point you, you brought up. Um, one of the things, there's an interesting um, area of research, and that is in behavior. What does practicing transcendental meditation do to your behavior? And there have been studies on all kinds of things, on uh, the interactions between married couples, interactions between friends, between students, um, uh, and and also the behavior of of prisoners. Sometimes we've taught transcendental meditation programs in prisons. And one of the things that's been measured is what happens to prisoners when they leave prison. We never tell them how to behave. We never tell a prisoner in a prison program, you shouldn't steal anything, make sure— you know, you don't commit crimes or anything like that. We just teach TM and we just teach them to practice twice a day. But what we've found is, is that the recidivism rate, which is the measure of of prisoners going back to prison after they've been released, is very low amongst people who learned transcendental meditation. And it's very, very high. I can't remember the percentages, but most people go back to prison who've, who've been in prison. But people who practice, learn transcendental meditation in prison. Don't go back to prison as fast. And the reason is, is that, that for the same reason that uh, practicing TM, uh, all of the different qualities of the Ashtanga Yoga spontaneously grow, qualities of better behavior, more appropriate behavior, grow spontaneously. There's a Sanskrit expression, Yogasta Kuru Karmani, which means established in yoga, perform action. It means if you establish yourself in the inner self, then your activity and your behavior becomes much more appropriate, much more life-supporting, much more uh, evolutionary, much more harmless to others, uh, and in a very automatic and spontaneous way. When we teach TM, just in the same way that when we teach prisoners, we don't teach them to behave, we don't tell anybody how to behave, how to conduct their lives. If someone comes to learn uh, TM, we just teach them transcendental meditation. We don't teach them that you should act this way or you should behave this way. This is how you should be with other people. Uh, And yet, we find that not only do prisoners not go back to prison, but students, uh, young students, young children don't bully each other as much. Uh, They don't treat each other badly. That The behavior amongst college students is much better than, than than the average vin, or than that students were before they learned TM. It happens automatically, and it happens spontaneously. And it happens because of two things. One, the stress gets released, and stress and anxiety are one of the uh, major causes of, of uh, poor behavior. And then the other reason it does is because the field of pure consciousness I mentioned earlier, it's the home of all the laws of nature— These laws of nature, these positive evolutionary laws of nature, just become more lively in one's awareness, in one's consciousness. And one uh, finds that one uh, just behaves better, more spontaneously. One way that people behave better is uh, in their their own eating and personal behavior. They just find themselves doing more life-affirming things, eating better food, watching what they eat, being careful of their diet. Uh, not because anybody tells them to, no one has to, no one needs to, uh, but people find themselves doing those kinds of things spontaneously.
0: Wow. And, you know, I think that gets into another topic I wanted to ask you about as you think about people just uh, spontaneously moving in the right direction and those cumulative field effects of consciousness. What are all the implications for higher states of consciousness at the individual level on our ultimate attainment of world peace.
1: What has been found is I think everybody intuitively knows that if you go into a house where there are people that are, you know, not getting along, they're fighting, they're squabbling, they're, you know, have very unpleasant relationships. It doesn't feel good to be in there. It doesn't feel good to be around them. It doesn't feel good to be in the house. If you go into some place, uh, if you've ever been into a, you, you know, visiting someone at at a, a drug re- rehab home or a, a prison, the environment there is very unpleasant, very uncomfortable. If you go into someone's home where people are happy and bright and cheerful and all get along, you find that th- there there's there's just a better atmosphere there. It's it's more harmonious. Marcy predicted when he was. Uh, first started teaching TM that if only a small percentage of people in the world practiced TM, that it would have uh, a very powerful effect, uh, ultimately that, that war would become an impossibility. And since that time, he predicted that in, I think it was around 1962. And it was a long time. It was a little over 10 years before there were any places where there was a significant number of people practicing TM. But he established a threshold of 1% as sort of a baseline. And in 1974, a study was done on cities throughout the Midwest and the US where there was more than 1% of the population practicing TM. And they found there was a significant uh, reduction in crime, in in, uh, uh, just other negative, negative aspects of quality of life. Whereas in the control cities that were picked out before the study began, there was a typical rise in crime and other negative qualities of, of, of quality of life. That study's been replicated quite a number of times yeah, since then. There have been over 50 studies that have been done, uh, with many of them with groups of individuals practicing the advanced TMCD program. We haven't talked about that much. But the TM City program, it's spelled S I D H I, is an advanced program where individuals learn to function on the level of pure consciousness. During TM, you experience pure consciousness and you, go, you tend to go in and out. TM City program, uh, students learn to just uh, function on that level, and it creates an enormous amount of brainwave coherence, uh, an uh, enormous amount of physiological integration. And it seems had a very powerful effect on the environment. And what was been found in situations where groups of individuals practicing this program together assembled, often in war torn parts of the world, um, that the the um, the 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 war and the atrocities and the the killing and the violence and all that decreased significantly. I actually had an experience, a firsthand experience of that. I went with a group of, I think there were 108 of us all together. And we went to Nicaragua. This was in 1978, I believe. And it was in the middle of a very, very violent and very ugly um, Uh, revolution. And we went there and we we practiced our TM City program together twice a day. And I have to admit that we were all very nervous because, you know, we believe when Marcy said that there would be an effect there, we believed it, but you never really believe it when you're, when you're in a, a serious situation. And there were reports that within a day that our hotel was going to be attacked by the Sandinista Army, and because and, uh, it, was, it was the most strategic location for the mayor of, or the president rather, of, of Nicaragua. And we went there, and within, and, and Marshy told us, he said, tell them that within three days the violence will stop. And then he said, it'll happen probably in one day, but we'll give ourselves two days leeway. And we went there, and um, after one day, the the violence just dropped off, Uh, an attack on the hotel just didn't happen, an attack, uh, a big attack offensive by the Sandinistas didn't happen. And after three days, children were playing in the streets, just three days, and all of a sudden, children were playing in the streets, and everybody was laughing, and uh, the atmosphere was 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 just incredible. The manager of the hotel, which d- had no idea what we were up to until we predicted the three days, he was absolute, literally in tears. And and the local people were, you know, the ones that knew about you know, what we were doing were absolutely astounded. I mean, from their perspective, they saw a night and a day. This was this was uh, measured, uh, you know, in terms of hard science later, several years later, but. But the effect of being there, it was. The, I really, really believed the effect and believed the, the philosophy after seeing that experience. It was so profound. Um, it, it actually happened all over the world. Marshi sent groups at the same time to, to terrible trouble spots. Uh, he sent one in to Iran in the middle of their evolution. And during the, the days that the people were able to practice TM, they had to leave the country at, at one point. But up until it did, the violence just stopped, and there was a day that they, in Iranian, it meant the blood would flow in the streets. Um, it was just completely calm, completely quiet. It, it's happened. It, it, the The statistics behind it have been, um, have been amazing. There, there was another situation in, in Lebanon had a very nasty revo- revolution. I can't remember the dates. I think it was late 70s also. Um, and we sent a group in Israel because we couldn't get into Lebanon so they had a group going in Israel and the people would come the Israelis and, and people would come from Europe also and they would come uh, on their vacations so there was a huge amount of coming and going people would come fly into Israel spend four or five days then they'd leave other people would stay there for a couple of months uh, and it's, so they plotted it all out on a graph and they found that when the um, uh, when numbers would, were, would go up and would go down, it would be like this with the graph of uh, the index that measured the violence. And it would go absolutely the two things together, the, the violence index or, or the dim, diminishment of the violent index and the number of people in the country. And the, the statistical chance of um, that being coincidence is less than 1 in 10,000. And that the study on that was published in the Yale University Journal of Conflict Resolution, and and the, the editors of the journal said we wouldn't normally publish an article like this because we just don't believe the theory, uh, but the the statistics is on a very high level and it's indisputable, so we feel that to be academically honest we have to publish this this uh... anyway. There's tons of stories like this, but but it's it's a real effect, and what our plan is 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 not to have groups that come and go any longer because the problem is is when they go then the the, all the violence returns and that happened to us in nicaragua within a week after we had to leave the country then uh, then the violence went back up and so we've we've um uh we're trying to to raise the finances for groups of individuals permanent groups of individuals um we're looking to countries where you can do that relatively inexpensively, because as an organization, we don't have a lot of money. Uh, And so we have to look to outside funding and outside uh, sources. And and that's what our main focus now is, in getting together at least one group of 7,000 people. 7,000 people is the square root of 1% of the world's population, approximately. And that's a group that we feel we would need to have to stop violence altogether. We we had a group of... um, Seven thousand in India for uh, about two years or something like that, and uh, this was back in the 1980s. Um, and uh, we ran out of funds, so we had to dis- disband the group. But while it was happening, I was watching the news, and on the Sunday broadcasts, the Sunday news broadcasts, there was there were discussions about why peace was breaking out up, breaking out all over the world. And people were theorizing one person said oh it's ronald reagan's international policies and other people were saying oh it's because of this or that and and it, it happened exactly during the time when we had a group of seven thousand uh individuals together and then uh war continued after the the group had to had to break up because the funding was lost
0: wow wow that's amazing and Thanks for those stories. And we will definitely make sure in the show notes to uh, include a link to that study you mentioned. I mean, yeah, that yeah, one is yeah. Yeah. super yeah, wild. Yeah. Uh same with your book as well, The Royal Path to Enlightenment, for folks who wanna wanna dive in more. Um, and so then let me ask you too, as we think about world peace, you know, what about in the current era where it's, you know, unfortunately over the past year it looks like geopolitical tensions have been Increasing pretty dramatically first in the Ukraine and then potentially, you know, it's looking like that could spill over to, to China. And so, I'm curious, do you think that there's enough time for, you know, world peace to really be established before we devolve potentially into a third war?
1: Well, it will eventually. Uh, you know, the problem is, is, is these studies, the governments know about these studies. Um, when I was... Uh, in Nicaragua, that they were watching us very carefully from surrounding countries, military intelligence, and they were astounded um, at, at at the effects. The, the actual studies have been presented to government officials. They generally get very excited about them, but they also don't want to risk their political career by um, promoting something that may seem strange or weird to other people. So getting people with the courage to come forward and do it It'll happen in time because it's the only solution. Um, the thing about the, you know, in the U.S. we look at the, the um, divisions between people of different political orientations, and they're 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 seemingly insurmountable. They they need to have a value of harmony interjected into the into the diversity. What's missing is harmony. D- diversity is fine, you know. There's 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 no problem with having people with different beliefs and different uh, outlooks in life, uh, but, but when the element of harmony is missing, then, then they tend to fight at each other, and they tend to go at each other's throats. And, and so, it, it'll, I think it'll happen in time, because enough people know about the effect, uh, high-ranking people know about the effect, and um, you know, it's just a question of when somebody wants to have the courage to say, we're going to fund a group of 7,000 people practicing together, I mean there're lots of ways of doing it one way um is to have a just a division of the military that just they're the peace creating division of the yeah. military and and they could practice their TM city program all twice a day and then go about their other military duties right. it wouldn't take very much to do it but but somebody has okay. to be bold and courageous and and, and yeah. promote it
0: well you know and, and you just made me think of a program that I'm very superficially familiar with but i believe that there had been something in like the 70s of like i can't remember what it was called but it's something kind of kind of tongue-in-cheek but about like the jedis of peace right and it was people who were actually actively trying to do this and then my understanding is it kind of unfortunately got appropriated by the more militaristic elements of the military do do you know what all i'm talking about no i'm not sure. okay yeah, it's from a movie called uh, "The Men Who Stare at Goats." It gets into a lot of this. So. stuff. Yeah, no,
1: I'm not I'm not familiar with it at all. But the idea is oh. good, you know. It, <laughs> it just requires having people who are paid paid to practice their TM City program collectively every day. Uh, schools is another possibility. I mean, the problem with schools is um, students come and go, but there are, there are quite a number of schools scattered throughout Latin America. Uh, where they're all practicing transcendental meditation. There's a wonderful priest, uh, Catholic priest, who is an absolute uh, adamant proponent of transcendental meditation. Who's just been going around to private schools, to military organizations, to the police, and all of that, and 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 teaching transcendental meditation. It's been a little difficult during the pandemic because getting the groups together is is, is been you know. Um, not legal in 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 many countries during that time, right. yep. but but that will come back.
0: Yep, that makes sense. And has there been much success in various countries in getting
1: health insurance to cover transcendental meditation? In some countries, not in the U.S. There hasn't been success yet. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's once again, it's a political, it's a political thing. Uh, but in some countries, I, I I I hesitate to mention names because I don't know if it's if it's public information to, for them or not. But, but, in some countries, you can learn uh t uh, m and and get um uh, health insurance, but it's not not that's very many good. yeah, well, and hopefully
0: hopefully that's something we can you know keep working on and I think you know get to getting to the point of the politics of it all and you know even on even on the war front right the the harsh fact is private aerospace and defense contractors are a very powerful special interest group there's a lot of money to be made in armaments, and so what's best for the health and prosperity of humankind is is not necessarily always consistent with the regulatory outcomes our politicians make so i I think that but you know the work that you've been doing in the miu movement and it's it's you know margaret always talks about this idea of like it's you know you you plant a seed and then it grows and you don't know how it's going to grow but it it does and it continues to get there so it's yeah it's coming (laughs) oh it'll be it'll be there awesome Well, Dr. Sands, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've had such a blast in the course and in this conversation as well.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it, and I've I've certainly enjoyed having you in the class. You've been a wonderful, ideal student. Well, thank you, and I I appreciate that,
0: and I look forward to taking more courses with you as well.
1: Yeah, I hope you do take more courses, and I hope you become a teacher at some point in the future. I think you really enjoy it. Well, thank you. I'd love that. Awesome. All right, well, have a great afternoon. Okay, you too. Thank you so much. Uh, Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. One of my favorite parts of Dr. Sands'
0: class has been understanding the philosophy of yoga in its fullness rather than the limited, often misinterpreted understanding of yoga prevalent in the West. While I can down-dog with the best of them and have certainly benefited from asana yoga, I've loved learning how those postures interplay with the other limbs of yoga, and that other techniques like transcendental meditation and Vedic recitations can complement yogic postures for deeper development of consciousness. I wanted to share a passage from Dr. Sands' book, Maharishi's Yoga, The Royal Path to Enlightenment, to give the listeners an idea of how profound these ideas are and how practically simple they are to achieve. On Substack and in the show notes, I've included a link to the book for those who'd like to dive deeper. The Eight Limbs of Yoga. Maharishi's commentary begins with an analysis of the term Ashtanga Yoga. He points out that Ashtanga, Ashta plus Anga is Sanskrit for eight limbs, not eight steps, and that Ashtanga Yoga cannot, therefore, be a series of steps for reaching yoga. He further reasons that limbs are by nature extensions, and that just as limbs grow with a body's development, the eight limbs are aspects of yoga that grow as yoga unfolds. The limbs of a body grow all together. If one limb grows, the other grows. All eight limbs grow. They keep on growing and growing and growing until each of them has grown to the fullest value and the body is fully developed. In other words, satya, truth, develops spontaneously as yoga grows in life. Likewise, ahimsa, nonviolence, grows automatically as the body of yoga unfolds. These are not steps to gain yoga, but are part of the very structure of yoga and develop automatically as yoga grows. Maharishi further comments that these limbs constitute the body of yoga, and that in order to understand yoga, we must consider the limbs. It is these eight limbs that constitute the state of yoga, the body of yoga, and the consideration of these eight limbs gives us the comprehensive structure of yoga. Yoga sutras, the aphorisms of yoga, are to bring the total knowledge of yoga. To bring the total knowledge of yoga, certain things must be considered. Patanjali rises to consider these eight fields of life and declares that the body of yoga, the state of life and integration or unity, is composed of these eight limbs. The eight limbs are, one, yama, the administrator, which administers the eight aspects of yoga and keeps them bound together. The five aspects of yama are satya, truth that never changes, ahimsa, non-injury, non-harm, asteya, non-stealing, brahmacharya, living alone, living brahm, and a parigraha, non-accumulation. The second limb, niyama, are laws through which the administrator governs. The five niyamas are shauca, purity, santosha, contentment, tapas, increasing glow of life, swadhyaya, opening the chapter of the self, and ishwara, pranidhan, opening the awareness to the maintainer of the universe. The third limb is asana, the seat or stability of unity. Fourth is pranayama, the movement, the impulse of activity. Fifth is pratyahara, experiences that satisfy the senses. Six is dharana, holding on to unity. Seven is dhyana, meditation. And eight is samadhi, transcendental consciousness, the union of individual awareness with cosmic intelligence. As it relates to the eighth limb, samadhi, many practitioners of TM, myself included, have argued that TM is the simplest, most effective way for achieving this physiological state. That this meditation technique, practiced for thousands of years, facilitates us in reaching what we call transcendental consciousness in English. And that through the twice-daily integration of transcendental consciousness with waking state activity, the human nervous system will eventually reach a point of refinement, a permanent state of cosmic consciousness. This is what the science of being is all about that the cosmological foundation of our universe is consciousness and MIU has by now accumulated hundreds of peer-reviewed articles supporting that thesis. Once mainstream science accepts this paradigm-changing truth, nearly every field of scientific inquiry will be profoundly impacted. But for those of you who don't feel like waiting for the Ivy League academics to tell you what is truth, why not try it for yourself? Check out tm.org to find a TM teacher near you. As Dr. Sands noted, you don't need to believe it will have any impact for it to work. My direct experience with the practice has only strengthened my conviction in the accuracy of Maharishi's theories. Unlike Dr. Sands, every day since I began has been better than the one before it.